This week we are talking about the 2010 Ron Perlman film, Bunraku. So, we selected Bunraku, or rather, I should say, I selected Bunraku because this is my wild card for this finger quotes season. Heavy emphasis on the finger quotes. Those finger quotes are doing a lot of lifting. (laughs) So I selected this movie because honestly, this movie is phenomenal. Yeah, it's okay. Your face is not phenomenal. Phenomenally ugly, terrifying. So the bit aside, this is actually, it really is a really good, really good movie. It's a stylistic action adventure romp with strong undercurrents of deeper characterization and personal tragedy, all presented in an overly stylized homage or tribute to the movie's namesake, Bunraku, which is a form of Japanese paper theater. This influences all of the set designs, a lot of the character costuming, the opening credits, and the the end are all straight out of paper theater, up to and including the end being dropped from above on, uh, you know, little letters cut out on strings. Well, that was a good episode. All right. Uh... <laughs> wait, wait, hold on, hold on. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Okay, our non-existent production crew are telling us that we have to actually do an episode. This is bullshit. You know, for people that don't exist, they're awfully bossy. They are. We should fire them. Hey, non-existent production crew, you're fired. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm being told that because they don't actually exist, we can't fire them. God damn it. All right, I guess we're just going to have to do an actual fucking episode here. <sighs> I don't know. That sounds like a terrible idea. Something only a couple of idiots would come up with. All right. Seriously, though, before we get into it, there is one kind of thing we need to cover with this movie. Even though it is set in the future, it is a retro futurist thing where the past heavily influences the future here. As such, some of the terminology, costuming, etc. is more recognizable is from the past rather than the future, including the use of a specific word. I am going to say that word, but please understand that this is not part of my normal everyday lexicon. Uh, We have touched on this previously in an Idiots Unleashed episode because it's the same word. They frequently refer to Yoshi, a Japanese man and his family, as Oriental. If I need to explain to you why that's not a good word, I don't know what to tell you. And the one thing that I will give the film credit for in that regard is it's really only the villains that are using that word when referring to Yoshi in the narrative. They actually use Japanese. Yeah. It's very clearly meant to be these characters are racist and saying racist shit type of thing rather than the movie going, this is an okay word. Um, But it is still said repeatedly. So if you are someone who is sensitive to that, you've been forewarned. 
there there's also a little bit of undertones of misogyny in it but especially from the villains oh yeah the villains are absolutely misogynistic uh i mean Nicola's whole speech about the greatest honor a man can bestow on a woman. Considering I know Ron Perlman is like a staunch feminist in real life, that scene, I don't know how he did that. It's called acting. You know what? Your face. Yeah, well, your face. Ron Perlman's face. Is a very face-like face. There is a certain face quality to it. It's like it's it's not an attractive face, but it's also not an unattractive face. It is a face I enjoy looking at. But it's not necessarily a face you want to wake up, ne- up next to every morning. I mean, I wouldn't mind, but I'm also peculiar. So, you know. I will say there are much prettier faces in this movie, uh, including our two main characters. I think every face in this movie is prettier than Ron Perlman's. I don't know. Did you see some of the killers? Eh, fair. Also, Boris. Boris was not prettier than Ron Perlman. True. Okay. That's that's definitely the case. Also, the uncle's not really. Not really. Like, he's not unattractive either. It's just, I personally believe Ron Perlman is more attractive than Shin Sagata. With no offense meant at all to Shin Sagata. But uh, we should probably get into this. Um, so our two main characters are Yoshi. Who is played by Gact? Isn't that a Klingon food? <sighs> Will you please stop making fun of the man's name? Jesus Christ. And Josh Hartnett plays our other protagonist, who is never even named. He is known simply as the Drifter. So these this is a really odd pairing, but I really love it. Gact is mostly known for his music in Japan. That said, he's a fairly popular musician in Japan, uh, for as far as I understand it, with a very accomplished career. And he was excellent in this as Yoshi. He, he was a little stiff, a little too formal, but that's the character. Like, that's Yoshi is a man who is on a quest that tests his personal philosophies. His father has sent him to retrieve a family heirloom currently held by criminals. But his personal philosophy is that of being a compassionate warrior, a precept of Bushido known as Jin, which the movie points out is itself a contradiction, thus making it hard to master. Great character. Love him. The drifter, you kind of start figuring out he's on a quest for personal revenge but it's not towards like the end of the movie that any of that even gets confirmed. So you spend like the first half of this movie, not quite sure what the drifter is after other than he's looking for Nicola. Nicola is the head of the local crime syndicate. There are other gangs in the city, but his gang runs the show. He is the big dog. And that is played by Ron Perlman. Fantastically. So we've got Woody Harrelson playing the bartender. That is literally what he is listed as. The bartender. Who has the hobby of making paper pop-up comic books. Pop-up funnies. One of which was Spider-Man. It was Roman Spartan Spider-Man. But it was still Spider-Man. 
Ron Perlman's gang has 10 killers in it. He's number one. Uh, all of the killers, I mean, most of them honestly were like practically glorified cameos. Most of them are either in the background or the minute you meet them is the minute they get shanked. With the main exception being killer number two. Kevin McKidd stole the show as killer number two. He kind of did. Like he was. He was having fun and you could tell. We also have Demi Moore playing Alexandra, a woman who is with Dakola, but not 100% by choice, even though she claims repeatedly it is her choice. It's complicated. Shin Sagata plays Yoshi's uncle. Emily Kaiho plays his daughter, Momoko. If I am mispronouncing any of those names, I apologize. That is the uncle's daughter, not Yoshi's daughter. Yeah. So that would be Yoshi's cousin. Just your, your, the syntax you used there was kind of misleading. I was perfectly clear. Yeah, well, your face. It's also perfectly clear, because like Larry, I am not white. I am clear. What are you smoking, and are you sharing? Somebody needs to go rewatch Space Jam. Dude, I haven't seen that movie since it came out. Well, that sounds like a you problem. Sounds like a you problem. Anyway, we're here to talk about Bunraku. Then why'd you bring up Space Jam? Why'd you bring up anything? Like your face. Okay, if if you don't want me bringing up anything, I'll just go play video games and you can do the episode yourself. You see what I have to work with? You see what I have to work with? <sighs> There's a dire lack of professionalism around here. There is, however, one person who put in some amazing professional work on this movie. And we'd be remiss if we did not bring him up. Who's that? Mike Patton. Yeah, so he is technically not in the movie. He's just a voice in the movie. He is the narrator. And holy shit, he does such a good do- job. Yeah, so there, the opening sequence, honestly, I, the opening sequence is one of my favorite parts of this movie. It's a very stylized, honestly, kind of paper craft silhouette done. Very brief history of this world this takes place in. And Mike Patton narrates the whole thing. And then he just kind of in and out narrates the rest of the film. I think my personal favorite is partway through through the movie, the drifter walks into a, an ambush. And it's like the most telegraphed trap imaginable. And he walks into it anyway. And it's him versus like two different gangs simultaneously, including two killers. <laughs> and the narrator just goes, you know, talks about how, you know, nobody's that good. Not even you. Who's the fucker now? <laughs> it's just the delivery is perfect. As the drifters looking around and going, yeah, okay, this is bad. <laughs> and all of the cast's performances are, of course, spot on. The overall performance of the film is one of those greater than the sum of its parts types of situation. No, okay. There, there's honestly is one other thing we should talk about on the cast, just kind of minorly. What's that? And that is 
the Nameless cast. That stunt crew. Oh, oh yeah. Because one of the things we're going to be getting into is, is the choreography. Like when we say stylized, we mean stylized. Like the, the Bunraku themes influence the set designs and the set pieces and, and some of the sequences. But even the combat is incredibly stylized in, in places. And the choreography to make that happen. There, the, the stunt crew, especially the combat crew, is amazing in this film. It's the, honestly, the fight scenes, they feel almost they feel more like like big group dances as opposed to a fight scene. And it works so well. And like I say, the crew that put it all together and pulled it all off did such an amazing job that not mentioning that team is kind of a crime. Yeah, the the stunt team on this was amazing. Uh, whoever their stunt coordinator was did an amazing job. And the choices made both in the overarching directorial level and on the stunt coordination level create some of the best interesting moments throughout the film. Uh, I mean, we get what in most movies would be the long drawn out climactic fight. Uh, the final fight of the movie where it's, you know, this big overly dramatic drawn out fisticuff. That's like 35 minutes into the movie. Between the two main characters. Yeah, we're, we're operating on superhero rules here where first team up, you got to fight. And what a fight it is. It's a well-choreographed fight that shows both characters' strengths and weaknesses. And most importantly, it shows how evenly matched they are. So, and for the record, the uh, stunt coordinator, mm -hmm. Clayton J. Barber. Dude put in the work. Uh, he was a st apparently did stunts on Black Panther, in fact. So, he's... Dude, dude's got some big projects under his belt. Yeah. The I, I need to actually get into these two characters for a moment because who they are influences their choreography so much. Yoshi is a samurai without a sword. For most of the movie. And the drifter is a cowboy in a world with no guns. For the entire movie. And so they, they answered the challenge of how do you make a, a gunslinger with no guns by making the drifter a speed brawler. Instead of quick drawing guns, he has mastered quick strikes with a fair bit of force behind them. At one point, he kills somebody with a single punch to the face. Which is actually entirely doable. You can kill somebody by breaking their nose and jamming it up into their brain, but it's not easy to do. And having that happen in real life is astronomically unlikely. Yeah. But everything in this movie is hyper stylized, so it, it, it works. He, he, so he is a brawler and a mean one at that. Uh, there's one run in the in in the movie where he needs to go bust Yoshi, the other main character, out of jail, 
and it's a one man prison assault. And it has to be one of my favorite assaults in all of cinema. Cause it's just him just running through level by level, one or two shots downing every guard and moving on just constantly moving. And the, the fun thing with that sequence also is that it was, it, it was straight out of a stage production the way it was set up. Oh yeah. Like the, this movie is a love letter to not just paper theater, but theater in general, like any kind of stage production. And Yoshi's fighting style is of course, very precise. His hand to hand combat is very clearly. I hate to present it this way because it's not, but it's, it's bog standard Japanese martial arts. But anybody who's actually studied martial arts would know there's no such thing as bog standard martial arts. But you watch enough martial arts movies, you you know what to expect to see. And Yoshi delivers that. There are a few sequences early in where he produces a makeshift wooden sword using the environment. So we do get to see that his sword skills, even though he doesn't carry a sword, are up to snuff several times throughout the film. But remember, he walks the path of Jin, the compassionate warrior. So we don't see him take a life until fairly late into the movie. And it's kind of a big deal. Yeah, he he in that instance, he definitely respected his opponent. But he also knew that the opponent was there was no getting achieving his goal while that man was still alive. So that fight is him versus a character we know only as killer number four. That means he's the fourth highest ranked killer in Nicola's gang. While that fight is taking place, the drifter is simultaneously fighting killer number seven who is a weird acrobatic fighter. And we learn at one point that the drifter does have one severe weakness. He afraid of heights. And killer number seven takes him up into a circus tent nearby up onto the acrobatic trapeze rig. And so you, as these two fights are taking place, this there's, this is where we start getting into, this is no longer just action romp. This is where we're starting to get layers. And and make no mistake, you can enjoy this movie just as an action romp. It's very easy to enjoy just, a, just as an action romp, in fact. Yeah. Or you can sit there and start going into it layer by layer like we're about to. And neither of those are the wrong way to watch this movie, in my opinion. It's It's just that good of a movie. Honestly, the fight with between Yoshi and killer number four and the drifter and killer number seven, my personal analysis, my personal take on it is that it's less a battle of them versus the killers and more them versus elements of themselves. The drifter needs to kind of face the one fear he apparently has and struggle a little bit with it. And Yoshi needs to figure out how to balance the path he wants to walk with the path he needs to walk. Also, they're just really good fights. Yeah. And 
like I said, the, the, you can just enjoy these, this as a, like a, a shallow, fun action adventure romp, but there are a few areas where things get heavy. I mean, philosophy is a recurring th- theme throughout the entire movie because you have all these different characters commenting on what it means to be a warrior, what it means to be a man, what it means to be a killer. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, not to spoil too much because I really think everybody should watch this, our final showdown is actually more a battle of philosophy than a battle of characters. If you want to kill a man like me, you have to stab him in the back. And so, well, what happened happened, and I, I don't want to spoil it, really. you you, you got to watch this, guys. I, you just just watch this, please. Um, it's really good and does not get the credit it deserves. And then you run into the writing where you're, all these characters are written beautifully. This world is written beautifully. And there's a few key pieces of dialogue that keep cropping up that just really resonate. I am going to spoil this part. If you want to skip over spoilers, you know, maybe skip ahead a little bit if you're listening to this, but uh, Yoshi has an uncle and a cousin in the city. And throughout the course of the events of the movie, the uncle perishes. And his last words spoken to his daughter as he's dying are just. Well, it's. Do you, do you want me to give the line? Go ahead and give the line because I could never do it justice. Yeah, I, I've got it sitting right in front of me from quotes on IMDb. So, you know, that's how I go. <laughs> uh, so the line is. Like an aged tree which yields no blossoms, cheerful my life has been, bearing but a single fruit. Up until this point, we've had like some serious conversations, but nothing quite so knife to the heart. But that was knife to the gut. Get out. For the writing on this, we have to give credit to... Um, Guy Moshe, who was both the director and wrote the screenplay, and the story was written by Boaz Davidson. It, it's it's phenomenal writing. Of course, your actors are always going to be the ones that really bring the work to, to to life. But as a writer myself, you need to give props for the work that was put in here because, you know, the writers, they create the plot. And they give you the dialogue to say. And yeah, sometimes you get your actors come in who who, who look at the character and, and offer up a different, slightly different spin on a, on a piece of dialogue or the outcome of a specific sequence of events. Uh, filmmaking is, at its core, collaborative by nature, after all. There is no one person who makes a movie unless they literally did it all by themselves, which... We call those student films most days. <laughs> and even most student films are not truly a one-person operation. Yeah. It's it's such a good, good movie. And there are so many sequences where you think it's going to go one way you're on your first viewing. And, and some of them, it kind of does, but not in the way you thought that you were going to get there. And in others, it just completely deviates from your expectation in nothing but good ways. And I don't know. Is there anything else you wanted to touch on on this? Cause I could, we could just sit here and, and 
banter about it all night because it's just so good. So one of the things I actually do find is kind of an interesting and refreshing change, especially from a, you know, 2010s action movie. You notice what was distinctly missing from this film? Um, Guns? Well, I mean, there's that, but something that is, is a staple of the action genre, like as a as a whole, regardless of what type of movie it is, that they decided to leave out. What is that? No romance plot. True. We get a couple of longing glances between the Drifter and Momoko, but it never goes anywhere. There's no heartfelt conversation in private later with her family. Oh, he's so rugged and handsome, but also so dangerous. I shouldn't get, I don't know why I like him. And there's definitely no him sitting with the bartender later going, she's awfully pretty, but she's, you know, my buddy's cousin. I should probably not do none of that. No dialogue about this at all. It's just a couple of quiet glances and it's never enough to, it's the kind of thing you put in there to be like, Hey, fanfic writers. Here you go. But we know the fanfic writers actually probably mostly ship the Drifter and Yoshi. I mean, wouldn't you? Porque no los dos. I mean, it's fic. You can write however much fic you want. That's the beauty of fic. So yeah, like, like they give you the implied romance, but there is no romance plot. None. No dialogue supporting it. Nothing. It's just a couple of silent, quick looks nonverbal communication and nobody pursues it because he's leaving and she's staying. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting choice to go that route with this film because like I say, so many others, there would be some, I honestly, in most films at some point they would have kissed because well, yeah, you know, pretty man, pretty woman, therefore must bone. It's it's the rule of action movies. And and they didn't. And I honestly think the movie is stronger for it. I do as well. Oh my god, the the emotion put into those looks too. Like the the acting and directing in this is amazing because some of the 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 the, the conversations in this movie really happen entirely non-verbally. It's it's all non-verbal communication. Body language, looks, expressions on faces, stuff like that. I mean, the dialogue and spoken stuff is is great too. But it it always impresses me more from a technical standpoint when the writing, direction, and acting come together to create compelling nonverbal communication. Because that's hard to do. Yeah, and there is there is honestly a ton of that in this film. I mean, the 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 first scene between the drifter and the bartender. Yeah. How long is it before they even say a word to each other? It takes a while. I mean, this is it it's one of the things that makes this such a good movie though. That said, I do want to end on one exchange that is spoken. There's a conversation that takes place at the end of the movie that I just absolutely love. And it's the Drifter and Yoshi kind of saying goodbye. They're going their separate ways. 
And, and Yoshi just looks at him like, yeah, so what are you going to do now? And, and the drifter just kind of looks at him like, I'm the product of a fucked up generation. I can't even seem to find a sunset to walk off into. Tomorrow is a new day. And then the narrator picks up on that last line and runs with it. I've only seen this movie twice and the drifters line in that conversation just have stuck with me this whole time. Cause it's just this, this kind of self-examining, but also self-deprecating very elaborate way of answering Yoshi's question with a, Okay, okay, you know, there actually is just one other thing I have to say. I, I, I have a small complaint about this movie. What? Yoshi never laid an egg. What the hell is up with that? That's it for this week. Please consider rating, <laughs> reviewing, following, and all that other nonsense in your favorite podcast platforms. If you'd like to tell us how much of idiots we are, uh, we already know, but... Or send Kaiju fan mail. You can email us at tiaadmedia at gmail.com. Or you can join us on Discord and the various social media platforms, all linked in the show notes. You should also check out this great podcast. Um, who are we promoting this week? I have no idea. We record these well in advance. I guess we just have to listen to the promo to see who it is. Once upon a time, 27 years after the bombs fell, there were two people, a vault dweller and a California girl. They met, and sparks flew. That's when things got interesting. Once Upon a Wasteland is their story. Follow Elizabeth Kirby and Odessa Valdez as they pursue their happily ever after in the post-apocalyptic Appalachian wasteland of Fallout 76. Available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and many other podcasting platforms. Once Upon a Wasteland, a Fallout 76 love story, available now. That was the greatest promo I've ever heard. It moved me to tears. It was so good, I already forgot who it was for. I guess I have to go check the show notes now. We'd also like to give a quick thank you to our supporters on Patreon and Kofi. Especially these idiots. Random Warrior, Rain, and the perpetually banned Athen Mortis. You know what you did. Thank you. We couldn't do it without you. Well, we probably could, but it certainly wouldn't be as fun. If you like what we do, though, please consider supporting us on Patreon or Kofi. You can get access to episodes a week early, shoutouts in our episodes, and special behind-the-scenes bonus content. Like the note session for this, that, I'm, I'm sorry. Also, we won't put commercials in our Patreon episodes. You can find us on patreon.com slash TIAAD media and ko-fi.com slash TIAAD media. Those links are in our show notes as well. And of course, thank you for listening to Two Idiots and a Dog. <laughs>